Hello everyone and welcome to this Archives of Disease and Childhood Fetal and Neonatal Edition podcast. My name is Jonathan Davis and I'm one of the associate editors for the journal and also a consultant neonatologist in King Edward Memorial and Perth Children's Hospital in Western Australia. Uh, this is a new format for the podcast and I'm in conversation with Professor Ben Stenson, the section editor for the journal. Uh, we discuss a wide range of topics from the phantoms or highlights from the issue uh, from the March edition of the journal and uh, we hope you enjoy the conversation. Uh, there are some instructions at the end of the podcast of how you can comment uh, on the discussion and uh, we certainly hope you like the new format. With me is the uh, section editor, which and I'll get him to introduce himself. I am Ben Stenson. I'm a consultant neonatologist in Edinburgh in the United Kingdom, and it's been my pleasure for some years to be the edition editor of the Fetal and Neonatal Edition of Archives. Thanks, Ben. And um, this is a, a conversation between us to highlight just some of the, the articles that are of particular interest in the journal. Uh, uh, the second edition of the year, uh, March, and it's the phantoms section. It's quite a varied subject matter in, in the phantoms, um, uh, early onset sepsis to pre-medication. And perhaps we'll start with the early onset sepsis. NICE have had the clinical guideline, for, and for anybody who wants to look it up, it's CG149 on the, the, the treatment of early onset infection. Um, it's been challenged recently by the, the Kaiser Permanente sepsis calculator, and I think this is the first comparison um, study that, I, that I've seen published comparing the two. Um, what was it in particular that interested you in this, this particular piece of work? Well, I think this is a really important subject, and uh, all neonatologists suffer the ongoing anxiety of the potential consequences of failing to identify and treat early onset sepsis promptly because its outcomes can be so bad. Now, the consequence of that is that we um, use various ways of selecting babies considered to be at increased risk of sepsis and use that to guide us in which infants we should screen, often investigating and treating infants who aren't necessarily clinically ill. And clearly, as the as the absolute risk of a baby being uh, having sepsis goes down, the number of otherwise well infants without sepsis who are going to be treated unnecessarily goes up. And that's a tension because that's disruptive to their family. It's potentially harmful in the long term with unmeasured consequences of antibiotics. So we all recognize that tension. And the, the NICE guideline is what... Um, guides practice for UK clinicians, and it's based on um, identifying risk factors that are associated with a greater risk of sepsis. Um, The sepsis risk calculator is a similar um, strategy that was developed in the United States, and the, the key way that it differs is that there was a lot more statistical modeling in the extent to which different risk factors influence the likelihood of sepsis. So it gives a more measured um, estimate of the risk. And um, the really interesting thing about this paper is that these clinicians across eight hospitals in Wales, 
implemented the NICE guideline as they are supposed to do in the UK and they took all of the children whose management was influenced by that guideline and they looked at their records and they identified what would have happened if they'd instead been managed with the sepsis risk calculator. And there was a very big difference between the two approaches in the number of infants who would have been recommended and treated using the sepsis risk calculator in comparison with the number who were treated according to the NICE guidelines. So this was something like 50% reduction in exposure to antibiotics. They were able to show the really important thing also that these guidelines don't tell you who is and who isn't septic. They only tell you who's at risk and they don't identify all the children. So in fact, there were six infants with, um, who actually had culture-proven sepsis during this study. And whichever approach you used to screen and treat infants considered to be at risk, the, the, the two approaches each individually um, missed three of them. Absolutely. And I, and I suppose it's important to recognise that both of the, the approaches that were evaluated in this particular study were evaluated retrospectively. Uh, and we don't actually know what would, well, we could, well, we don't really know what would happen with these two approaches used in anger and prospectively compared. And I understand from the paper, there is a, a prospective comparative evaluation being undertaken in Wales or the Southwest and Wales. Um, as I understand. I don't know the exact units. It's certainly in Wales, but it may be other units too. Um, the, the editorial by Karen Puapolo is really interesting too. It's important to recognise she was deeply involved in the development of the sepsis risk calculator. So she highlights a lot of information about the difference between the two. But yes, the, the clinicians in, in Wales are actually using one or the other in a prospective comparison so that they can measure the overall effects of the two approaches on population well-being. Absolutely, and I I suspect that we will need to wait for a period of time until we find out how those prospective evaluations uh, proceed. Uh, And I suppose it should be laid clear that currently the NICE guidelines are remain the NICE guidelines and and anything that would supersede that would need to be done in a safe and um, uh, well-thought-out manner. Yeah, and the the same authors um, have another paper coming through the editorial process in the journal, which looked retrospectively at a much larger number of children with proven sepsis and reminds us that, uh, again, whatever approach you use, you're not going to identify them all. So I think this is going to be an interesting subject area for a long time. I think so. Um, But... Moving along to sick patients and their uh, intubation, um, particular interest uh, of mine, certainly as uh, somebody who has tried intubating without uh, pre-medication and intubating with pre-medication throughout the evolution of my training. Um, it's a very interesting study looking at uh, fentanyl, atropine and, and, and morphine and cisadrocurium in the pre-medication for, for intubation of, of patients. Um, was there anything that particularly drew you to that? I mean, it's, it, there was a, quite a dramatic decline in, in blood pressure just after the, the medications were given before the blade was inserted. And, and I suppose 
we aren't really there yet with understanding what these medications are are, are doing in terms of safety and cardiovascular risk and endocrine ventricular hemorrhage risk for preterm babies especially. Exactly. I think that, um, that that's the reason I'm interested in us being able to publish more data, evaluating different approaches to pre-medication. Uh, it's more or less universal now that people recognize the kindness of using pre-medication for um, intubation in our neonates just as we would in any other patient age group. But kindness can be looked at on another level too in terms of risks and benefits to their well-being. And this particularly vulnerable group of babies at high risk of IVH, we really want to have data that's evaluated alternative regimens that enable us to pick the safest one associated with the level of kindness that we want. And I think that we're a long way from that and papers like this really just highlight it. I, I absolutely agree. And I think um, w with this population, I think there are a number of balancing factors that need to be taken into consideration. There's um, the, the blood pressure and the perfusion to the brain. There's also the, the stress that's caused by putting a, a piece of metal into somebody's um, oral pharynx and, well, let's be honest, digging around until you find the, 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 the airway in, in the first few tries, but also what these medications do in terms of the neuroapoptosis to the developing brain. And all of these medications aren't necessarily benign, but where the balance is struck with cardiovascular compromise and stress and um, first pass uh, success for the intubator. I think there are a lot of um, things and I'm, I'm glad the journal is, um, uh, is trying to forge forward and, and, and having the safest regimen for these infants. I couldn't agree more. And that being said, oxygen saturation in, in preterm infants is, is something that is uh, seemingly we're always riding the waves on going up and going down. And um, the, there's a, post-hoc analysis of the support trial in, in the journal in, in this edition. Um, there's a lot to unpack in even just the phantoms uh, section. Um, I mean, where, where do we start with oxygen saturations, Ben? You might know more than most. Thank you. I should highlight the fact that I have a conflict of interest in this regard because this is an area of personal research of mine. I was one of the investigators in the Boost2 UK trial, which was one of the near-prom trials of oxygen saturation targeting that went alongside the support study. And as you all know, the meta-analysis of these trials showed that infants randomized to be targeted to a saturation range of 85 to 89% in comparison with a higher saturation target range of 91 to 95%, the lower targeted infants had a higher risk of mortality and necrotizing enterocolitis, whereas the higher targeted infants had a higher risk of retinopathy of prematurity requiring treatment. So there's, there's a tension in that set of outcome findings that implies that in getting rid of what most people would see as a higher risk, that of mortality in NEC, you might have to accept an increased risk of ROP. And obviously what flows from that is an interest in whether or not it is inevitable that you have to accept a higher risk of ROP. And so what these authors have done is a post hoc analysis 
of the achieved oxygen saturation patterns in the trial, because all of these infants were on oximeters where the saturation values could be downloaded at regular intervals. So they know a lot about the exposure to achieve saturations for the entire intervention period whilst the infants were breathing supplemental oxygen. And, um, and of course, we know that broadly speaking, being randomized to higher SATs uh, was associated with an increased risk of ROP. But one of the questions is, is that inevitable or is it just that there were some kids who were not targeted as well as others and who therefore might have had their ROP modified if they had been targeted better? So there's a mixture of good and bad news in this study. First of all, in the early weeks of life, weeks one to five, the increased risk of ROP was associated with spending a higher percentage of time in the saturation range 91 to 96, which is more or less the intended target saturation range of the high target group. And in other words, getting your saturations into the range that is associated with reduced mortality does increase your risk of ROP. And some of that risk is likely to be inevitable, particularly when you identify that the same investigators have already shown that there was an increased mortality risk associated with having median saturations less than 93%. The good news in this article is that in the later weeks, weeks six to nine, they found an association with ROP needing treatment and time spent with achieved saturations 97 to 100%. And when I say that's good news, what I mean is these saturations are above the intended target. And when you think about week six to nine, this is when the children are much less unwell. They've often stepped down to a lower acuity nursery. They may have lower nurse to patient ratios than before. It's not difficult to see how the quality of oxygen targeting um, historically may have been less good during that period of clinical care. And it gives grounds for optimism that a greater focus on the quality of oxygen targeting in these later weeks might still modify the risk of ROP in a beneficial way. It seems this story has a little uh, more to run until we know the answer. Um, the, the support data is 10 years old now, is that, would that be right? Yeah. Um, published in 2010. Yeah, so exactly 10 years old this year. Um, is there any new data coming? We're, we're seen to be going around in, in circles a little bit with some of this um, sort of uh, information. Do we need another study? Is there a will for another study? What, what are your views on that? So um, we're undertaking similar post hoc analyses of data in the um, Boost to UK trial. So we will provide more data to give people an impression of the overall strength of this evidence area. But yes, there definitely will need to be more trials. I mean, we did these trials. We just used the ranges that people were already using. Mm. We've shown an advantage to being in the higher end of that range. It just seems intrinsically unlikely that by chance we guessed right the first time it seems likely that we might be able to achieve further beneficial modifications in outcome with more studies. And 
those studies are going to be difficult. I think the thing that will make them easier and more robust is once um, servo-controlled oxygen systems become sufficiently widespread that we can take away the clinician element of it and do the trials using servo. And before we can do that, we've got to learn a lot more about the achieved saturation patterns you get with servo. And we've also got to learn about how comparable the different servo devices are to one another. So there's a, a period of work required before we can do the high quality trials that we need. But um, that piece of work is going to take a little time. And I suspect that in that time period, because more or less all of the manufacturers are working towards making servo devices available, servo devices will gradually become widespread enough that by the time we're ready, we'll have the equipment out there to do the trials that we need. Let's hope so. Um, survival outcomes. Uh, it seems that uh, we are moving towards uh, lower gestational um, stabilization and, and resuscitation and certainly the, the German neonatal network study that is um, detailed in, in the journal has seemingly started to approach that subject. Um, resuscitation at 22 weeks, Ben, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I, I picked this uh, article for phantoms because this is a really hot topic in the UK at the moment. Neonatologists all over the world are noticing these reports um, from Germany and Canada and Japan about the increased survival outcomes and the quality of those outcomes in infants at 22 weeks gestation. And there are a lot of countries where these infants are not offered care routinely. Uh, this is a particularly hot topic in the UK at the moment because Mindful of this emerging data, the British Association of Perinatal Medicine has released new guidance to clinicians in the UK about the approach to communicating this difficult situation with families and decision-making in partnership with families under these circumstances. And on the one hand, this is an optimistic time for the parents of extreme preterm babies, and on the other, there's a lot of clinician anxiety about the potential burdens that might be experienced by these babies and families during their intensive care, whether or not they survive, and also later in life. So there's a lot of opinion out there, but the data is still only emerging. And one of the things that interested me about this study, aside from the remarkably high survival in 22-week gestations who get as far as the neonatal unit in Germany receiving active care. I think it was 57%. The other thing is just how infrequent these 22-week gestation babies are. So this, this report described the outcomes in their network between 2011 and 2016. And in that time, they had 8,222 babies admitted to neonatal units with gestations between 22 and 28 weeks gestation and 105 of them were 22 weekers so that's 1.3 percent of the patient group that accounts for most of our efforts in neonatal intensive care so whatever people's decisions and choices are it's really important to remember that this is a very small part of everything we do 
Absolutely, and I suppose though it um, on the on the counterbalance, if you're faced with a set of parents who are about to have an infant who's 22 weeks, that's all that matters to them at that that point in time. So although a, a small amount of the overall work that we do, no doubt when the situation arises, it becomes extremely important for everyone involved. Well, absolutely. I didn't mean to imply that it's not important. I meant to imply that those people who are anxious about a new concern that may that may arise from offering treatment on the basis of this exciting emerging data shouldn't be anxious that this is going to become a large part of all the work that neonatal units do. Absolutely, and I wasn't implying that we were denigrating that those parents in that situation. Just uh, you're right; there isn't an army of 22 weekers about to be delivered into neonatal units. Um, I guess that was the the point. Um, uh, but moving from very small babies to term babies with mild hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, there seems to be a certainly from my reading of the the journals a, a sort of a groundswell of um, opinion that's pushing towards uh, cooling studies in, in mild HIE and the difficulties and the outcomes of babies with mild HIE and there's a paper in the journal uh, on that very topic this this edition. Yes um, this, this study is interesting because um, I think that neonatologists in all neonatal units have no difficulty deciding whether or not an infant uh, meets the criteria for therapeutic hypothermia when the infant has very clear encephalopathy. But at the margins of those criteria, there are certainly infants with uncertainty. And that is leading to more and more infants being treated who probably wouldn't have met the criteria for enrollment in the trials which demonstrated the efficacy of the treatment. So the question is, is it reasonable to assume that those infants benefit equally? And um, the best way to answer that would be with large trials, but there are no large trials. So these authors um, did a meta-analysis of data extracted from trials that were randomized or quasi-randomized focusing solely on the babies who got into those trials, who in fact turned out to have mild encephalopathy rather than moderate to severe encephalopathy, and looked at whether there was any signal that they benefited from cooling. And um, they found 117 babies, and roughly half of them were cooled and half were not. And when they looked at their composite outcome of death or moderate disability at um, greater than or equal to 18 months, the outcomes were more or less identical between the two groups. And it just highlights to me, it's really a bit like the sepsis question at the start. We, We go in vigorous pursuit of infants who might benefit, but we treat infants who might not, and then the potential harms of treatment become more important and um, the paper simply highlights the uncertainty about whether there's any benefit and clearly we've got to remember that three days of intensive care and hypothermia is a fairly uh, invasive intervention. Yes it's not entirely benign the separation of mother and baby the all the apparatus of cooling is required some centers electively intubate for cooling and what have you so um, I, I mean you've mentioned prospective trials um, do you know of any prospective trials that are that are currently 
ongoing. I know that there are efforts to get them off the ground, and um, but I don't know of one that is presently recruiting. Likewise, I was desperately trying to, to look up the trial register while we were talking, but I wasn't having any success. Um, uh, well, that really rounds up the highlights from, from this issue. If, if any of you do know of a, a mild uh, HIE trial um, and you want to pass a comment under the podcast uh, link on SoundCloud or wherever you listen to podcasts, please, please do so. Uh, ben and I are both on Twitter. Um, uh, at Stenson Ben is Ben's uh, handle. Uh, at Jonathan underscore Davis 3 is mine. And the journal has a, a Twitter handle as well, at ADC underscore FN. Um, it would be great if we could generate some discussion uh, with this podcast and um, you can give us your feedback and whether you feel this is a, a worthwhile thing to do at the start of, of each edition. So my thanks to you, Ben, for a for conversation and uh, we look forward to people's comments. Mm-hmm.